You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning and thank you for being here this morning, for choosing to worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ with us here at Grace Community Church. Um, just a couple of things. Uh, well, yeah, a couple of things. Yesterday was a great day for the Samaritan's Purse shoeboxes. 110 shoeboxes were packed, but there are still 45 boxes to go. And we need 40 gifts of $10 to help with the shipping. So please see Jill McGuire is going to be out by the shoeboxes after the first service. And then uh, Michelle Eisenberg will be there later, but for the second service, you don't need to know that one. Um, also, I want to mention that this Saturday, in addition to the men's breakfast, we will be having um, our Grace Connection class. It's a membership class. If you've never uh, been to Grace Connection, you want to know more about Grace, how we operate, what we believe, that kind of thing. Especially if you're, if you're planning on membership or thinking about membership, this class is required. We don't assume if you attend that you will be um, <clears throat> joining, but it's a good way for you to find out whether or not this is the right place for you. So Saturday morning from 9 to noon, and then uh, Sunday morning will be the last session. Well, I have three pastor friends with whom I consult on theological matters, especially when I'm going to preach from a text that I'm not that sure about. I will take my pastor friend's advice over commentaries that I read, not that I think they're more scholarly than the commentaries, but we talk about scripture enough that I, they know how I think, I know how they think, we're all processing it together. That's the best way to learn about the Bible is in community. You can't really do it on your own. You need to learn in community. Of course, you need those individual times, quiet time where you're with, with the Lord and, and the Word. But you also need to do this in community, especially in difficult uh, portions of Scripture. Uh, some of you have heard this before, but my friend Jimmy, sometimes I'll say, hey, Jimmy, what do you think about this text? And he'll say, I don't know. I'll have to check my notes and see what I believe. And I, I know exactly what he means. Hey, by the way, I didn't see him there. Jim Acock, 96 this past Wednesday. Yeah, we got to say that. Many years of serving the Lord. I, I preached a funeral yesterday. I asked Jim often if he would preach mine. He says, I'd be glad to. That's what, that's what he, that's his uh, standard response. So, this past Sunday night, if you missed Grace Matters, and most of you did, that's as far as I'm ever going to go in trying to make people feel guilty for not being at church. But if you missed Grace Matters, you missed a discussion that is very important in informing our ministry in this community in the days ahead, as we consider the thoughts 
the, 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 the ways of thinking that will be coming into our community. Here's a hint. The thinking of those moving into our area uh, is far different, vastly different from the traditional values of old northern Harnett County, southern Wake County. The funeral that I preached yesterday was not for a member of Grace. It was one of my classmates. We had a small class, 25, 30 maybe, growing up, all the way up to about sixth grade. Uh, and that funeral was old Fuquay. That's just what it was. Um, but the folks that are moving in, not old Fuquay. Lots of different thoughts. The old ways of doing church will not be attractive to the young professionals by whom we will soon be surrounded. So in last week's Grace Matters, this is why I referenced my friend Jimmy, Neil Manning reminded us of a statement that he has heard me say in the past and I hadn't thought about in a while. Here's what he reminded me of. A consistent, coherent, biblical worldview is perhaps the most compelling witness that we have with the lost. To hear such a worldview articulated, though, is not enough. In addition to speaking the truth in love, we are called to exhibit our trust in God's ways through our behavior as well as our words. And this can only be done as we interact with our neighbors one-on-one. -on -one. And as they see the consistency of what we believe lived out, the gospel becomes more attractive. Do you know what our study in 1 Corinthians has given us? A consistent, coherent, biblical worldview. The instructions that Paul gave to the members of the of Corinth church are not instructions he would ever give to the world. He says, church, this is for you. I'm not talking about the world. They're not under the same authority that we are. But under the Lord's authority, this is the way you're supposed to believe and live. <clears throat> The biggest flaw in the Corinthian thinking and behavior was their desire to bring the pagan ways of the world into the church. As an aside, it's, it's interesting to think that most of these worldly church members were saved. Paul affirms this over and over. These people that were living like pagans were saved while the Pharisees of the local synagogue were not. It's quite Cognitive dissonance. And it just, these people look like Christians and these don't, but these are believers. That is not the standard though. And Paul was saying up one side, he's saying one side and another, you need to stop living this way. What a shame that those who believed the gospel and knew Jesus personally did so little to point to the perfect son of God who came to save sinners. These Corinthian Christians looked far more like the sinners who needed Jesus than representatives of the living God. Not that Christians are better than others. 
But there ought to be something to distinguish us from the world. Have you ever thought that the American church problem is increasingly looking like the Corinthian church problem? I'm not speaking about churches that don't acknowledge the authority of Scripture. Most of those churches gave themselves over to the culture a long time ago. Increasingly, though, the evangelical church is bringing the ways of the world into the church in the name of God's love. But the way to reach our new neighbors moving in among us is not to look as much like them as we can. But to lovingly show them God's design, design for human flourishing on earth. And, and this flourishing can only come as a result of a relationship with Christ who redeems what is broken in the world. In today's text, 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16, we find Paul rebuking the Corinthians yet again for not only bringing the culture into the church, but seeking to justify their extreme behavior by declaring themselves to be free in Christ. The issue that Paul addresses in this portion of the letter is confusing to 21st century readers, even with our understanding of God's created order and the different roles that men and women have been given in life and in the church. And if you're here for the first time today, and I know several of you are, this is a doozy of a text for you to come in on. I'm telling you, I have to quit saying, I just thought it was tough before in 1 Corinthians. I think it gets a little bit better from this part until we get to baptism for the dead, you know, in 1 Corinthians 15. We'll have to give some thoughts there. But this one is a tough one. So what is the meaning of women in our text being commanded to wear head coverings when they pray or prophesy? Was it a cultural matter like meat being offered to idols? Or is it a commandment that is necessary for us to follow today? While I will not venture to answer more confidently than any of the authors of the commentaries that I read answered, I will follow the pattern of the last several weeks of working our way through the text, trying to explain it as best I can. And you're going to say, hey, wait a minute. You didn't really address that, that verse. I, I confess. I just, because I don't know any more than the commentators know what some of these things mean. <clears throat> but after we go through the text and bring application for our day. And oddly enough, as difficult as this text is, it speaks very clearly to the three different aspects of our purpose statement, which David Calvert faithfully gives every week. Exalt the Lord, establish believers, and engage the world with the gospel. So before we begin, let's ask God to make known to us what he wants us to understand. So would you pray with me? Father, we recognize that there are portions of Scripture that are just difficult to understand. And we know that there was a specific meaning, there is a specific meaning, and we know that there are a lot of principles we can draw 
from teaching about issues of the first century when the New Testament was written. Thank you, Lord, for including this in the scripture. And may we understand exactly what you want us to understand. And live in a way that not only pleases you, but keeps clear the view of the cross for those moving in into our neighbors, neighborhoods. So, Lord, we pray that you open our eyes and that you'd open our hearts and fill them full with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians 11. 2 and 3. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. If you're wondering why this section begins with verse 2, it's because verse 1 goes with chapter 10. Paul begins this section with a heartfelt sense of community that he shared with these believers. And he, and he begins it in a very positive way, although he's quickly going to move to a spirit of rebuke. And just to remind you that Paul's letter to 1 Corinthians or to the, Corinth, to the Corinthian church in this first letter of his is really unlike any other letter of his except for Galatians. Galatians, they had a real theological problem and he was very direct here in Corinth they had behavioral problems because of a misunderstanding of the theology but it was a willful misunderstanding of the theology he, he finds points of reference wherever he can or points of of community with him wherever he can and he says you know you're following the traditions that are being established in this New Testament church but I want you to understand something and what I'm about to say is based on this understanding of the way God has ordered everything. The head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. The Greek word aner uh, can be translated either man or husband. Not the first time it's translated man here, but almost every other time in, in, this, uh, in, in this section of scripture. And the Greek word gune can be translated either woman or wife. But Paul is almost certainly referring to the headship of a husband in relation to his wife in most of these verses. It is understood that a wife is no more inferior to her husband than Jesus is to the father. Paul is not saying, <laughs> look, it's clear to everybody that a man is better than a wife. What? No, that's not what Paul is saying. There is, though, a proper order. Many translate head as source, and the Greek allows that, but I'm not going to go into that here. Paul seems to be talking about created order as he addresses in the following verses a cultural issue that is to be understood according to design. So, if this is clear as mud to you at this point, it's about to get even more interesting. Verses 4 to 6. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. 
But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. I'm just beginning to wonder if perhaps I shouldn't have just skipped this section off. No, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. This requires a bit of explanation. It's one of the benefits of going through a book you have to. In the first century, men and women dressed very alike, except for their heads. Men didn't cover their heads, but women did. Now think about this. The only women who did not cover their heads in public were the high-priced mistresses of the city elites and the sacred prostitutes at the temple of Aphrodite. Now that all of a sudden makes this make sense, doesn't it? Paul was asking them, what do you think you're doing not covering your head when you worship? That's not our custom today. But it was the custom in that time. And he was addressing that very directly. By the way, if you think I'm ignoring Paul's acceptance of women prophesying in the, in the church, I'm not. I, I'm going to cover it when we get to chapter 14. But it's a really big topic that needs a lot more explanation than we can give here. For now, it's enough to acknowledge that head coverings on women indicated a lack of propriety, especially for married women, although all women would have been expected to cover their heads in worship. For a woman in first century Corinth to be in public without a head covering would be a signal to men that she was available. Now look, if you're a single adult... And you don't want to be single much longer. And you meet someone, a man or a woman, who might or might not be attractive to you. And then after a while you think, yeah, I'd, hey, I'd like to see maybe something works with this guy or this, this lady. Sooner or later your eye is going to cast to the left hand and you're going to look at that ring finger to see if there's a ring on there. Now, if there is no ring, that tells you something, right? If there's a, there is no ring, but there's a tan line, you know, around where the ring was, that tells you something more, and that's not good. That's what was going on. When women uncovered their heads, it was a signal. I'm available. As in 1 Corinthians 5, the church had gone well beyond what the culture allowed as far as acceptable behavior. It was typical of Paul to say, look, if you want to go that far, why don't you just go on and shave your head? Slaves, women slaves, female slaves had heads shaved. Women caught in adultery had their heads shaved. They didn't have very good standing and, 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 and possibly you're... Thinking, man, this sounds so anti-women. No, 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 no. Paul was the opposite of that. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But Paul was saying, if this is the way you want to act, why not just go all the way and act as though you're guilty of what you indicate? So what about the men? 
It was shameful for them to pray and prophesy with their heads covered. Why is that? Two reasons, possibly, maybe more one than the other, but very possibly both of these reasons. First, the priest in the pagan temples who were usually in high society in ancient Corinth would cover their heads when they would offer sacrifices to the pagan gods. So for a man to cover his head, it was like worshiping God in a pagan way. And Paul said, that's not acceptable. But the other thing is, the other possibility is, is that he was trying to show that he was no better than women. That men and women are equal. He was right. If he did that, he was right about being equal in value, but they were wrong to say that there was something inappropriate with God's design for husbands to be understood as the head of the home. Now, again, I feel like I need to say, for those of you who are new, we've talked about how men abuse their authority. And it's not acceptable. It's not acceptable anywhere, but it's surely not acceptable here at Grace Community Church. We just, we can't allow that. We're not going to allow it. So this is not Saying, all right, listen to your husband, don't have anything to say. That, that's, that's not the point that Paul was saying. In our day, we don't uncover or cover our heads to show what we believe. But we have ways of saying, hey, don't think just because I'm a Christian that I believe men are superior to women. But who's saying that anyway? It would be theologically, theologically absurd to say that. It would surely... Be ungodly. I don't know anyone who would say that. Be careful because this is what happens all the time. Straw man fallacy. You constantly characterizing your opponent's view in a way that they don't. And they say, because you believe this, I reject it all. Nobody's saying that. Before we move on, let me say so that you're clear about this. Paul was dealing with a cultural Issue. Women in our day are not sinning if they're worshiping with their heads uncovered, so you can breathe a sigh of relief. And men are not sinning if they are worshiping with their heads covered by a cap. Although, I'll say that it wasn't long ago when a man wearing a hat inside at a public gathering or when the Pledge of Allegiance was being said or the national anthem being sung, that was a sign. Of disrespect. Times are changing. Cultural norms change. In Paul's day, it was an absolute disgrace for a man to cover his head. He pulled that toga up while he was worshiping. So now that we've gotten that out of the way, it doesn't get easier going forward. Verses 7 to 12. For a man ought not cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for a woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of angels. Nevertheless... In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man 
of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Paul just called it as he saw it, didn't he? Man was not made for woman, but woman for man. That is why, according to Paul in this text, women ought to show their submission to the authority that God has put in their lives by covering their heads in worship. After all, angels are present. Now, we haven't really thought about angels being all around us in a long time, not since we read Frank Peretti back in the day. But there are spirit beings all around us. I don't know why that should impact us any more than thinking that the Lord and the Holy Spirit are always right here. It just does something when you think we're in the midst of many spiritual beings that we can't say. And men must not dishonor the Lord's plan by covering their heads. Paul goes on to say that woman is nothing without man, nor is man anything without woman. This interdependence is according to God's design. Now, we've talked for weeks about God's design for gender and sexuality and marriage. So go back there. If you miss something along the way, it's all, it's all tied together. For the last two months, all of this ties together. Um, let's go to the initial statement in Scripture about the created order that we so often reference. Genesis 2, verses 18 to 24. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord had informed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Now, can you imagine? Is this the one? Uh, no. Is this the one? No, I don't think so. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Verse 20. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, at last, literally, that's what he says, at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Just just a note about this. Isn't it interesting that the Lord calls the man to leave his father and mother, not the woman? It's not that the woman doesn't need to, but I think men sometimes have more trouble getting away from mama and daddy than, than girls do. 
Some of you husbands are going, hmm. I won't say who they are. When you read and understand the first four chapters of Genesis, you have a pretty good understanding of how history works. It's all there. It's all there. By the time Cain kills Abel, temporarily pardoned, allowed by the Lord to live, starts building cities, it's all there. We think we are so enlightened. But if we fight against God's design, just like Adam and Eve did, Cain did, then we will find ourselves at odds not only with God but with nature. And that's not a good place to be. In concluding this section, Paul appeals not only to cultural sensibilities, which in this case are good, these cultural sensibilities, but to nature as well. He ends in verse 16 by saying, Corinth church is no different from any of the other churches. It's the same everywhere. Verses 13 to 16. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? This is public worship we're talking about. Does not nature itself, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone in churches of God. And that's a funny way of saying it's the same everywhere. But that's what he means in verse 16. So is this a cultural instruction or is it a biblically based and principled commandment? It's not the slam dunk that it appears to be in these verses. But without question it relates to the cultural norms of the day. And that's enough for us to understand at this point. Three points of application, beginning with this. And this one will sort of come out of the blue at you. As it was in the first century, so it is now. To believe and live in obedience to God's word is both inconvenient and uncomfortable. Such intentional living may soon lead to persecution. Believe and obey anyway. This past week on election day, you, you want to know where I'm going, don't you? I'm not going to talk about control of the House, control of the Senate, none of that. That's not the point. This past week on election day, voters in five states, California, Michigan, Vermont, Kentucky, Montana, very different states, voted for fewer restrictions on abortion. Montana went so far as to deny rights to an infant born from a partial or botched abortion. So imagine Montanans refused to vote to protect a crying baby wriggling on a table. I think you would admit that I rarely talk about politics in the pulpit. And the only reason I mention this is not to show how far our country is, is, is not to make a point about a, this party or that party, but to show how far our country has moved from biblical morality. 
How long will it be before the state demands that we perform same-sex marriages at our church and hire staff regardless of their views about gender identity? Look, um, this is what was going on in Corinth. Christians weren't really accepted into general society. They were thought of as weird, but for a while they were thought of as a Jewish sect. And the Jews, everybody knows, those people are crazy, but, you know, but a lot of Gentiles were attracted to the synagogue because of their morality. But once Christians started saying, Jesus is Lord and there is no other, and it's Jesus to whom we must give allegiance. Now, now think about this. Jews, pretty somewhere along in here, people were beginning to be required to say, Caesar is Lord. And Christians would say, can't do that. And the Roman authorities would say, look, you can say Jesus is Lord, but you have to say Caesar is Lord also. And, and Christians said, can't do that. Now, when the Jews said no, the Romans said, that's a bunch of crazy people. We can't exterminate them all, so just let them, let them, let them be who they are. That's why in Hebrews, so many Christians, those who had professed Christ, were thinking about, thinking about going back to Judaism because, hey, don't we worship the same God? And as you hear me say over and over, we worship the same God as long as his name is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, the Jews knew him as Yahweh. We know Jesus as Yahweh. Understand there's a tight connection between Jews and Christians. But until you acknowledge Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're not worshiping the same God. But Christians were weird. Corinthians were trying to be not so weird. They were trying to look as much like the world as they possibly could so that the world would do two things. Number one, not persecute them. And number two, be attracted to the gospel. We've already acknowledged today that Paul addressed the church not, um, and not unbelievers. But it's impossible to hold believers to account at such a high standard for their personal lives and it not aggravate those in the world around them. Remember when we were in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 and 10 and, and how the pagan temples had these big banquets and Paul said you can't go. And Erastus, who was the city treasurer of Corinth, would come in on Monday morning and they'd say, Hey, Erastus, where were you, man? We had a big pagan celebration the other night. And he's like, ah, I can't do that. Now, boy, you think you're better than us? What is, what's up with you? You better get in line, Erastus, or you're going to be in trouble. Paul wrote this letter somewhere around A.D. 54. By A.D. 65, full-blown persecution was in play. It wasn't at their doorsteps. It was in play. The problem with many churches, of course, is that they not only accept the culture's shift away from biblical morality, they find ways of going beyond where the culture is and then lead the culture to go even further away. From God. One of the key places they go away from God's design. 
is in his instructions for husbands and wives. And that leads us to the second point. Husbands and wives honor one another by following biblical commands related to God's created order. Every week, I think, this is going to be the week that next week it's going to not be near as many people here. This may be it. The Corinthian husbands and wives were dishonoring one another by the wives publicly refusing to show submission to their husbands and by the husbands refusing to assume their role as Christian leaders of the home. Remember, Paul in his day elevated the positions of women in dramatic fashion. He called them co-laborers in ministry. He commanded husbands to love their wives sacrificially unto death. This whole culture was all about men. Women were objects. Men, women were there for men's pleasure. And Paul said, no, you're there for one another's benefit. And pleasure and husbands love your wives to the point of death, and they would be like, What? It's okay for her to die in my place, but me die for her? Have you lost your mind? So, this is not Mr. I think women are inferior saying these things. And he, he, he went on to affirm their, their status in public praying and prophesying. Again, which we'll come to in chapter 14. Paul was far from the chauvinist that many want to make him out to have been. He was, though, unapologetically committed to God's order in marriage and how it played out both privately and publicly. So here's the question. What have you done to honor your husband or your wife of late? Both in private and in public. Do you talk about your spouse's positive attributes to others? Or do you speak negatively about your spouse? I'm not talking about good-natured kidding, but kidding can easily get out of hand. I'm talking about the really cutting remarks. What about, dare I ask, although this is maybe as close an application as we'll find, what about the way you dress? Are you honoring your spouse? And more importantly, are you honoring your Lord? Are you honoring your brothers and sisters in Christ? Would you dress at work the way you dress at church? What about your language? Do your jokes Honor your spouse and your children. I'm going to spend time in home group this week talking about ways that we can honor our spouses. But what about those who are not married? The head coverings were meant to be worn by single women as well as married women, and they honored the Lord and the entire congregation by keeping culturally expected standards. And that leads us to the last point. Christians... Honor one another and do nothing to obstruct the view of the cross. What was it, what was it with, the, with the Corinthians trying to outdo the culture? 
There is danger on both sides of the cultural issues of the day. Surely if we go beyond what the culture allows, we'll keep people from getting a good view of the cross. People will say, are you kidding me? Call yourself a Christian and you live that way? On the other side, if we add the sorts of restrictions to acceptable behavior as legalists tend to do, will cause people to turn in frustration because they were looking for something that they didn't find. Other times they'll turn away because they were looking for something or they'll find something that they were looking for, something to use against the gospel. Living in a gospel-centered, biblically-directed manner, it's not easy for churches. It's much more difficult when our eyes constantly go to social media rather than Scripture. As we love and honor one another by respecting God's word and God's ways, we point to Jesus. In fairness, when we point to Jesus, unbelievers might be convicted and appreciate the view, but they might not. That's okay. It's up to the Holy Spirit to do the greater work. In conclusion, consider this lesson from 1 Corinthians 11. We are not called to think about how much like those in the secular world we can be so that we will appear acceptable to them. But rather, we are called to live in a way that pleases God and honors our brothers and sisters. Again, not how much like the culture can we be so that the gospel will be appealing. But how might we live in such a way that pleases the Lord and honors our church family. That's what attracts the world. And it's just one more reason that we should hold fast to God's word and follow his ways. Let's pray. Well, Lord, um, I don't know why we find this more difficult than the rest of your word. The world is so far away from your design for us and for flourishing that it shouldn't surprise us when... A text like this would bring particular frustration and hurt and pain and confusion. Lord, may we begin from a place of trust. May our hearts be ever toward you. In even difficult teachings, may we receive and Lord, give us Strength to believe, the faith to believe. Even when we must say, I believe, help my unbelief. Give us courage to live in a way that pleases you and honors our brothers and sisters. We do it for Jesus, for his sake. It's in his name.
that we offer these prayers. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.